0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Business with me, Claire Catford. In this podcast, we've assembled four expert panels to provide some insight into four key areas of personal finance. We'll be covering house prices, mortgages, ethical spending and how to beat the credit crunch and get more for your money. First off, we'll be looking at the mystery that is the housing market. Before I introduce our panel, let's hear from someone who is herself fresh from the housing battlefield. Her name is Katie, and she showed us around the place that she and her fiancé, Max, have just bought.
1: We came to look around this house um, on a Saturday, and the current tenant was kind of half-naked in this room, which is the first bedroom that we're coming into here, um, currently being used as a study. Um, but it's a nice big room, lots of light... The factors that pushed us into buying now were really that even though neither of us are real financial people, we were aware that it was a good time to buy. We started looking in March 2009 and we saw that at that point actually prices were considerably lower than when we actually ended up offering. It was becoming apparent that housing stock was very small. It was like you went on all the websites and they were the same flats that were there last week. Anything good and new was disappearing it was like you would see somewhere you'd walk into somewhere you'd like it it was like a starting gun went off in your head and um and you knew that you had to offer like straight away and there'd be total panic and it was it was quite a pressurized competitive situation that obviously is fueled by state agents they want you to think that the house is going to go off the market you know in seconds and in terms of price we did get considerable amount off the asking price But it's still, I wouldn't say that we're going to make an awful lot of money on it when we sell on. And we didn't buy it in the expectation that it was really going to be a financial gain in the long run. We bought it because we wanted a home. um, This is our bedroom. Um, It has lots of bookcases, which reflects my obsessions in life. And, um, and then there's a bathroom coming off it with an ensuite. We were really lucky in that my family provided a lot of the deposit. I'd saved quite a lot of money as well, as had Max. So the deposit actually was less of an issue than getting the mortgage. I, at that time, was not in a permanent contract in terms of work and... The mortgage company couldn't cope with me at all. They absolutely couldn't cope with me. So eventually we had to discount me entirely from the mortgage process because they just couldn't fit me into one of their boxes, and I would say that those boxes have recently been very much narrowed and tightened. It was a real struggle. There was a time when I was literally speaking to the mortgage advisor more often than I was speaking to Max. So um, it was really hard work getting that, and and it feels like almost buying a house, I think, is a test of your endurance. Um, this is the bit, this is the room that really sold it for us. It's got loads of light. It opens onto the communal gardens, which no one else ever really uses. And um, it's, a, it's a big room. It's it is lot. the most amazing feeling. It's very, at. It's makes us feel very whole and together as a couple. It's our home and we're going to build it together. Um, <laughs> and hopefully at the end of it, if we're lucky, we'll sell it for more, but it won't be a lot more. But we're not even counting on that really. It was about having a home.
0: That was Katie getting just a little bit choked up about the joys of home ownership, or perhaps it was just the stamp duty bringing tears to her eyes. Well, as we know, the housing market can be a cruel and overwhelming place. But luckily, help is at hand. We're joined now by Jonathan Davis, a chartered financial planner and managing director of Armstrong Davis, Oliver Gilmartin, who's a senior economist at the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, and our very own Hilary Osborne, the editor of The Guardian's Money Site. Oliver, just listen to that story there, very moving and very emotional, of course, house buying is just like that. But give us a bit of an overview of how the market has developed over the last year and what seems to be happening, particularly in the short term.
2: Well, the market actually hit a trough in February. Our own survey, um, which looks at our, our agents and looks at demand out there, and um, was witnessing a pick-up in inquiries, which initially wasn't really materialising into new mortgage loans. However, we have seen a subsequent pick-up since February With prices on some measures up around ten percent since hitting that trough, and really this has been most definitely due to um, a lack on the supply side, market tightness, as it were. Um, And that's what Katie
0: said. She said that there's not
2: not enough stock available. That's right. New instructions that go onto surveyors' books um, have been consistently declining, and we would expect, you know, at this part of the property cycle, for there to be, you know, a substantial pickup. But I think um, low interest rates essentially have, have really bailed out the homeowner. And what we've seen is, that, you know, a lack of properties coming to market.
0: Jonathan, how can prices rise when the economy is still in recession? It's really tough out there. And is this indicative of a longer term rise to come, do you think?
3: I'll answer the last question first. No, it's not indicative of the long term. On the contrary, it's a blip on a long term downtrend which started with the crash in September 2007. Prices have risen because, as Oliver just said, the Bank of England slashed base rates to half a percent. It's unheard of in our history and mortgage rates fell also. We've also seen our currency decimated. So we've seen um, Russians and Europeans with uh, strong currencies coming in and buying in, say, Kensington and Chelsea – and, of course, the numbers of transactions are still very, very small. You know, people talk about this recovery. I don't see any recovery. It's forty to 50,000 transactions a month, according to the Land Registry in England and Wales. That compares with long-run norms of over 100,000 a month. That's why prices have risen, because people are not rushing to put their properties in the market. That's a brutal
0: reality. Hilary Osborne, is that one that you would agree with?
4: Absolutely. I think, as both Oliver and Jonathan have said, mortgage rates are so low that people who've been made redundant this year can actually still afford to pay off their mortgages. So we're seeing no forced sales, we're seeing fewer repossessions coming onto the market. So the usual things that might happen when the economy declines have actually been staved off because interest rates are so low. And on top of that, you've got sellers who, just like buyers, are unsure what's going to happen to prices next maybe holding off, not putting their homes on the market, you know, thinking twice about getting an extra bedroom just for the sake of it, but keeping their powder dry, really.
0: Jonathan mentioned Kensington and Chelsea, of course, that's London-based. But what about the situation elsewhere? Is it more or, or less gloomy? There are pockets of the country, of course, that have really been hit hard with job losses.
4: Yeah, I would say that the top end of the market in London is nothing like outside London. I think we've got areas of the country... In Manchester, Leeds, city centres, where you've got all of these flats that were built in the boom times, they can barely give them away at the moment. So I'd say that it's very localised, the picture at the moment. It's very hard to generalise at all about what's happening.
0: Now, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, you're always bringing out reports and always bringing out predictions. Did you see this coming?
2: Well, our last forecast was that prices would be higher at you know, the end of the year. Um, which at the time, you know, some people were saying, well, that's a bit optimistic, the surveyors would say that. I think, you know, it's very difficult to to predict um, house prices when you've got things being carried out, which, you know, is is for the first time in history. But I, I do think that what hasn't really played out as yet is a, a big pickup up in, a, in forced selling in a cycle.
3: And Oliver is absolutely correct. The government stimulus has been absolutely unprecedented. We've had a VAT reduction, we've had the car scrappage scheme, £2,000 for new cars, for old bangers, the massive reductions in interest rates, and, of course, we are the biggest bank bailouts in history. Of course, when you put £200 billion into the economy, it's going to, in some way, feed through to asset prices, But it's not affecting the economy. We still see unemployment rising dramatically. We still see, of course, six quarters of negative GDP... What happens when the stimulus ends? After the next election, don't we already know that taxes are going to rise, that government spending is going to be slashed? The fact is, the economy is in a dreadful state, and that's what ultimately affects the long-term trend of house prices. Mm. And that's why our assertion is that 2009 has just been a blip on a medium-term downtrend, you don't have a 15-year rise in house prices, ending in the biggest economic and financial collapse in history and a house price crash which only lasts 16 months.
0: Well, that's an overview. Let's go back to Katie for a minute. With that as the backdrop, Hillary, how does someone who wants to buy a house begin to, if you like, forage their way through all the the difficulties and the red tape, and also the economic realities that have just been outlined.
4: Something that Katie said, which is quite interesting, was that, they were hoping they might make a profit on the property when they sold it.
0: There was a note of optimism in her voice yeah, though, wasn't
4: there? Yeah, and I think she i mean, she did stress how it was more important for it to be at home. And I think that really is what, the way people have to go into things. I, you can't look around properties and think, am I going to make money out of this? You, you really have to think, do I like it? Can I afford it? How does it measure up against renting the, the cost how long am I going to live there? And be really guided by all of those things. Do you take
0: Jonathan's perspective seriously as well? And what he's saying is it's an economic
2: meltdown. We've had all this investment, but not much has changed, and it's not likely to change. Well, I think it's quite worrying that house prices are up by 10% even though we have been in recession. And I think if you take a look at, say, what's been happening in the US, in Spain, in Ireland, there was a big oversupply and a big construction boom. Um, They're not seeing a similar turnaround in those markets. Um, So I think you have to look at the supply side of the UK um, housing market and, you know, there have been studies that look at um, the supply situation. And it is one factor which contributes to, you know, higher trend growth in house prices in the UK compared to other other countries. I think there is a debate about the unemployment numbers and how far unemployment rises from here on in. You know, we will expect significant cutbacks in the public sector. However, if we are seeing a reco- an economy moving out of recession then maybe we're not going to see quite the dire predictions on unemployment. And so I do think that you know, these stimulus measures are having an effect and I do think this house price recovery has got further to run.
0: Some wise words on the mysterious subject of house prices from our panel Jonathan Davis, Oliver Gilmartin and Hilary Osborne. Now, as night follows day, the thorny issue of house prices is followed by the murky world of the mortgage market. David Hollingworth is a mortgage specialist from London and Country Mortgages. And Jill Inslee is the head of the consumer team at The Guardian and Observer. I asked them first whether the mortgage marathon is still quite as gruelling as it seems.
5: It's a very tough market out there. Um, it has been for some time now. But actually, there are some more encouraging signs. there been a bit more stability it's not quite so doom and gloom, perhaps.
6: Jill Owensley? Well, like any jungle, as long as you prepare yourself properly and you've got the right tools, there is a way through it. So, you know, there is light at the end of the path, maybe. Rather than in the tunnel. undergrowth? Yeah. Um,
0: well, we'll get some more of your expertise in just a minute. But first, let's hear from Phil. He showed us round the flat he's hoping, in just a few days, to call his own. That's if he can get final approval on a mortgage.
7: Right. Let's see if we can get in for a start. Um, hallway. This leads into uh, the living room, which is the front aspect of the building. I think everyone at my age is the first-time buyer. I'm 28, so the opportunity to get on the ladder has been a long time coming. Uh, the mortgage market at the moment, uh, very tough in my experience. I used a financial advisor, a very well-known wealth management company. I went to them because they're a whole-of-market uh, mortgage advisor and I respect their ability to have access to more mortgages than I can get on my own. Into the bathroom, which is uh, small but perfectly formed, rather like myself. In London, you are going to get bathrooms which don't have any windows and don't have any uh, sort of outside light. But um, his recommendation was to go for the two-year tracker, which is at four and a half, a 4.4% above base rate, which means I'll be paying about 4.9% at the current. With the idea that interest rates are historically low, although in the current circumstances we don't really know what's going on, but the anticipation was that interest rates would stay in and around that level for the next two years after that two-year period, my locking period, I can then look to remortgage or get onto a fixed rate, where I can take a longer period. The next door is the kitchen, which is also very small, but plenty of fitted units. I'll be on my own, so I don't need a lot of space. I do cook; I am a modern man. Uh, it's got a nice rear ax- uh, aspect, so I can always. Open. The process of getting approval for a mortgage and finding a provider—it certainly seems a lot harder than it was in the days of Northern Rock falling over themselves to lend people money. I have a good credit rating, but my provider made me sign a commitment that I would pay off all my credit cards uh, within one month of the mortgage approval. So I couldn't have any unsecured debt whatsoever to my name within one month of taking out the mortgage. Um, Luckily for me, I already paid off my credit cards, but I had to state all my credit cards, what the limits were, who the providers were, and what the current balances were, and then provide that undertaking. Uh, Onto a... Rather small balcony, but a lovely balcony all the same. A real bonus. A bit of outside space, a little bit of uh, fresh air, a, bit, a little bit of light. Um, it's not particularly. Overlooked. It's been hard work, but no I'd more like more to think balcony the balcony outcome is on. worth the slog that it feels like it's been to get this far. I'd like to think I'll be moving in all my little boxes over the weekend or on Monday morning and then settling down for a cup of tea and probably sitting on the boxes because I don't have any furniture or a bed. But I, I do have a sleeping bag.
0: The ever-resourceful Phil, blooded but unbowed and just beginning to glimpse sunlight through the trees. David, it sometimes feels, as he's just suggested, that it's a confusing world and it's got even more confusing in the last 12 months. Can you give us a sense of how the banking crisis has actually affected the mortgage market?
5: Yeah, well, we've seen a a direct reversal in the market of 2007, which was very volume-driven. So lenders were, as uh, the case study said, almost falling over themselves to lend money now we 're in very much a different marketplace, and actually lenders are almost pulling away from lending too much they 've only got limited funds that they will uh, be prepared to lend. The margin on uh, mortgage deals and the rates have been pushed up, uh, and it 's a much tougher process to get hold of a mortgage. One of the biggest changes has clearly been the deposit requirements, and that has hit first time buyers hard so Whilst they've seen prices dropping, actually, in terms of mortgage rate, they need a much bigger deposit than they will have been used to. And,
0: Jill, it seems to be the case that financial companies are much more rigorous when it comes to looking at people's credit history. That will have affected first-time buyers. Uh, Phil, aged 28, they are particularly having a tough time, aren't they?
6: They really are. And as Phil found, they're not interested in lending to people who have lots of debt already, So the best thing you can do is exactly what he did, which is reduce your debt, build up as much as you can in the way of savings and make sure your credit record is sparkly clean.
0: So when it comes to that
5: mortgage choice, should it be fixed or variable? That's always a big decision, isn't it? It's the perennial dilemma, I think, uh, one that borrowers struggle with. always, but at the moment it's it's ever more confusing. Earlier in the year we saw a rush to fix rates because the forecasts were that base rates could rise very quickly and sharply. Um, However, that's now started to change. Forecasts are that base rate could stay lower for longer and so there has been a definite shift back in balance towards variable rates, so tracker deals in particular. What you have to ultimately do is look at what's going to be best for you. Can you Manage an increase in your payments if base rate were to go up by even as much as three, four, five percent. If the answer is is no, then I think you have to still make the consideration of whether a fixed rate is a better deal for you.
6: There's one other thing that I'd like to recommend that people consider, which is whether they should take out mortgage payment protection insurance at this precise moment. Normally, it's not something that we're terribly keen on in the press, and we've given it quite a bad write up in the past. But with the job situation being so precarious, then maybe it is just something worth looking at right now if you can afford it. And, you know, if in a couple of years' time your position looks much more assured, you can always cancel the policy. But I would say it's probably better to be safe than sorry right now.
0: And this also depends on where you live in the country as well, because, of course, the house prices vary considerably. From the northeast, for the southeast, for example, big, big differentiation.
5: Yeah I think you know the headlines are at the moment that prices have started to tick back up as a kind of average across the nation but obviously house prices are very regional Uh, and the best thing that first-time buyers can do is keep a very close eye on the local market rather than being panicked into are we at the bottom and are they going to go sky high again there's other people who will be forecasting that actually prices could come back down again so really it's all about focusing in on are you buying the right property still that, that is the key thing rather than am I missing out on a, on a bargain here.
0: And moving on from first-time buyers Jill what about the way the situation now is affecting people who might be looking to remortgage or are stuck in a fixed term mortgage and they can't do anything of course without a penalty?
6: People who are already in an existing mortgage and aren't sure about how much it will cost them to move out of that should always first ask the lender what the penalties are What are they likely to have to face in the way of charges if they remortgage? Um, If they're still in doubt, why not go to a mortgage broker like David? You know, they're experts on the whole field. They can give you all the information you need about what's available out there. I would always recommend that people go to a mortgage broker.
0: And finding one that is good, I think, is always difficult, because how do you know if you go to someone who's supposedly independent that they are going to give you good advice?
5: You've got to look at aspects of what are, what service are they providing. So is it a whole of market rather than just a restricted panel? That's a key one to look at. Um, and what kind of charges might you face? So is there a fee?
6: Also, I'd add in there, make sure that when you're dealing with a mortgage broker that they don't sell you anything that you don't want. If you're not wanting to buy life insurance or MPPI, which is mortgage protection payment insurance alongside your your mortgage then don't you know you're there for a particular reason and make sure you understand everything that they're saying to you and don't sign on any dotted line unless you're happy with it
0: I remember when I was getting a mortgage I was besieged by all these terms and terminology um, and it took a lot of courage to actually ask people to explain what they were and I felt a bit stupid doing it but you've got to ask if you don't understand haven't you
5: You do have to understand what you're looking at. I think there's loads of information on on the web now. Most people who come to us will probably have had a look on the internet. The only thing that a lot of these sites don't provide you, of course, is that advice to your individual requirements. There's loads of information. The terminology will be explained so you can work your way through that and get a feel for what's on the market. But ultimately, if you want advice, approaching a whole market broker makes a lot of sense.
0: Jill, in terms of the kind of questions you get asked or that emerge from the website, the Guardian website, when you do a mortgage clinic, you get besieged, don't you?
6: We certainly do. People are very worried about their situation. Um, I think the the sector that's probably most worried at the moment are those who bought a couple of years ago. They bought at the peak of the market, really stretched themselves to get a mortgage. And since then, they've seen their, their home desperately fall in value so a lot of them are now in negative equity they can't remortgage even if they want to and they're probably paying more now than they actually anticipated it's very very hard for them
5: People have suffered on the remortgage side as well. This is normally negative equity. We'd be talking about riding it out for those who need to move. It's a problem, but those who don't, it's it's not a problem. But the erosion of equity has had an impact on those looking at remortgaging. If you are in negative equity, one thing that you can look at is um, some lenders are offering their existing customers deals, even if they are in a negative equity position. So if you did want to fix in, for example, rather than go on to standard variable rate, Uh, there are a few, two or three lenders out there who who may be able to come up with an offer for you.
6: Just remind us,
0: Jill, your advice to people looking for a mortgage now, where should they begin?
6: They should begin by looking at their own financial situation and then going to talk to a mortgage broker about it. Make sure it's a whole-of-market mortgage broker who can give them a good idea of what's going on and what is available across all the lenders.
0: And, David, your view of uh, the long term prospects for the mortgage
5: market, what do you predict if that's at all possible? Yeah, crystal ball gazing. I'm mm. um, always a good one. But I think next year we can't really hope to see huge change in the market. I think it will be pretty tough. The forecasts are that the level of lending won't improve particularly be very much the same as this year so that's really very low it's going to remain a tough market you are going to be looking at better rates for bigger deposits still in my view
0: David Hollingworth and Jill Inslee now in honor of what is often a shall we say financially challenging time of year we're looking at ways of making the pounds or pennies in our pockets go further if you've got recession blues we've got some great ideas to help you beat the credit crunch. First, let's hear from people in Market Square in Cambridge about how they're coping with the downturn. You
6: begin to look at the price of each product
5: you buy, whereas you know if you are not in that economic situation, you normally don't. I've got two kids to support, bills. It's definitely everywhere you go. Got friends,
2: got good and jobs, can't get jobs. Credit can't hit everyone, I think.
4: We're probably getting all the bargains now. We're looking for the yellow stickers and the red stickers and not going for the main prize things and looking for sale stickers up. Yeah, definitely. We're going to enjoy ourselves, but probably cut down, not go out as much. Perhaps spend it at home a bit more.
2: If you're spending loads of money, you still want to save because you don't know what's going to happen in the future because the financial crisis might get a lot worse. I used to see something I want and then I used to buy it. I don't anymore. Shopping got cut down. Just looking for buy one, get one free. Um, Holidays... I haven't really been on holiday for two, three years, so... (laughs) As long as I look after my kids, that's
8: the main thing. (laughs) We're not really going abroad, either, are we? No,
4: No, we're not. We're off to Yarmouth next weekend, (laughs) (laughs) in a caravan, on the edge of a cliff. (laughs) But we'll be fine.
7: (laughs) Things will settle eventually. One way or another, things will find a a level peg and continue. It's just a matter of just keep gritting your teeth and bearing with it until it does just level out, because it will
3: eventually...
0: Some cautiously optimistic words from a resolute young man doing his bit by shopping for his country. Well, listen to that and with me, we've got two brave consumer champions who are equally resolute when it comes to getting the very best deal possible. Mark Lockley is the author of How to Pay Less for More. You may also know Mark by his alias as well as his day job. He writes on The Guardian money site as The Negotiator. With Mark is Huma Kureshi, who has no secret identity that we know of, being perfectly happy in her role as a reporter for The Guardian's money site. Where she writes regularly on consumer issues. First, let's start with you, Mark. What are some of the reasons, do you think, that we do spend more than we need to? It has to be psychological more than anything else, or is it just negligence on our part?
9: I think a part of it is what you're saying there about the, the negligence. I call it buyer apathy. The good news is, because of the recession, one of the good things to come out of this is the fact is our people are being more cautious, and that, and that was being said by the, the, the listeners earlier. One of the important factors, especially if you're in a sort of difficult situation financially, is to look at all your monthly bills all the you know things like the landline your mobile phone your home insurance your car insurance and then look at where you're out of contract, and quite often you've actually haven't realised you are out of contract. So therefore, you're at perfect rights to go and look at the market and see what's going on.
0: Do you practice what you preach? Are there savings that you've managed to make? Give us an example.
9: Absolutely. From anything from home insurance, where you know initially I was paying three hundred and fifty, four hundred pounds, and that had been negotiated down the previous year. This time I got it for two hundred and ninety. It's merely about looking at the market and researching the competitors. Speaking to them, saying, look, you could have my business. Is that something of interest to you? Get a price from them, and then equally go back to your original people and say to them, look look at the fantastic deals I'm getting out there.
0: Hummer, I know when it comes to fashion going out, eating out, not to make out that you're a complete hedonist, but you have got some... <laughs> well, maybe you are, and we need a few of those. But you've got some ideas in terms of how you can still enjoy yourself without constantly looking over your shoulder and seeing how much you're spending. What are the ways of enjoying yourself on a tight budget then?
10: I think there's definite ways that you can do it. It just takes, well, it takes some creativity as well as just looking around and keeping an eye out for good deals. Um, When it comes to things like clothes, there are some great outlets where you can get really good labels for less. Don't be too snobby and avoid places like TK Maxx because you'll find some really great brands in there. There's also this whole new wave of vintage coming back into fashion and all of this. And one thing that's always good fun to do is if you've got a friend and you always quite envy her clothes, is host a clothes swap. Um, It's something that loads of girls are doing across the country. It was quite nice to know that they're still going to get worn and and not just have to throw them away. One of the other
0: things I I know that you are experienced in is that the hiring market i.e. hiring a handbag or hiring a dress for a special occasion rather than buying i mean let's face it who can afford a designer handbag that's nine thousand ten thousand pounds yeah unless you're a a money babe or something or or got a trust fund or
10: a wag or a wag (laughs) so there are
0: ways around that if you really wanted to go to a do and and have a chanel bag
10: if it does really matter to you there's so many websites where you can source this sort of thing be it designer handbags like you've already mentioned but also jewelry and there are some really specialist top-end jewels that are for rent for those big one-off occasions where you want to feel special and you want to wear something that's special but you can't afford £10,000 for a pair of earrings Mm. so you can have them for £50, £30 instead for one night. And And no one will ever know. Just try not to lose them. Yeah exactly. (laughs) One
0: of the things so of course that occurs to me and I think it's great to be positive about this even though times are tough. For some people the idea of buying clothes will be out of their league simply because it's just about survival on the breadline. In that situation, maybe you are a single parent, you're on benefits, you're struggling to feed your kids. Where would you begin in that kind of scenario?
9: I mean, I think that's the level that it is very tough. However, there are ways around it. As We said earlier about looking at each individual bill to actually bring those, those costs down. The other thing is, is things like free cycle. FreeCycle is a local group where you can get on onto the net and people give stuff away rather than eBay where you pay for it. You just check out that and maybe there's some stuff free there. You know, there is second hand items, there are second hand clothes. And you know, once it's washed, who ultimately will know? Is there any stigma, do you think, Hummer, to being a savvy spender,
0: or is it actually more, I don't know, distasteful to be flashing your cash? Is actually being savvy Quite cool now.
10: I think it is. I think there was a time where maybe you didn't want to be seen as being a cheapskate or someone who took your time in finding things or bought everything online or used vouchers and so on. But I think now there's more of an acceptability that everyone is, to a certain extent, doing that. I think the nicest part, well, if you can call it a nice part of the recession, is that in a way you can just take things down a notch and scale it back to what you really need and just realize that actually you don't need to spend all that much money on the frivolous stuff for if you do there are ways of doing it without throwing thousands of pounds and that notion of just spending a little less more time with with people
0: the interviews that we heard a moment ago as well uh, someone was saying that they went on their holiday or their holiday is going to be to great yarmouth in a a caravan Mm. (laughs) about to fall off a cliff holidays big purchases building work on your home what about cutting costs there as well i mean holidays seem to be a bit of a luxury at the minute don't they
9: well they don't have to be that's the thing i mean what i often talk about is luxury but with affordability you know we as consumers are suffering at the moment however so are shops what you can do, say for example on holidays and hotels, is actually ask for money off. You see a price, you automatically see it in print, say £80 per night, you assume it's got to be. Well what's made it £80 per night? Would that person rather you call and offer £50 a night than have an empty room? Most of the cases it would be yes.
10: Sometimes you just need to overcome that shyness of picking up the phone and actually asking, because it's not a very British thing to do necessarily, and it can feel a little bit well, a bit rude to say. Well, actually, I don't want to pay that much. I know I've had problems with that, even just getting my car insurance. You just feel like you, you almost feel like you don't have the right to ask for a cheaper price. But uh, you ask nicely, and you never know. So.
9: And I think that's absolutely right. And you know, I've looked at this, and the fact is, there's an embarrassment factor. You know, they sit here and they think, oh, I can't do that. Now that's because they think of it as haggling. Haggling to me is that seat of the pants. Go and give me a tenner off. Well, what's the justification? Why should you? Have you, have you realised why you should get £10 off? What I talk about is negotiating. It comes from the business world where you, know, you wouldn't imagine Richard Branson winging it by haggling. What I say is look at it as an hourly bill. If you're going to be saving, say, for example, a higher purchase, £4,000 on, on a brand new car, which with a family car is feasible, So if you're going to say £4,000, two hours preparation, you know, £2,000 an hour, that's something Paul McCartney would be happy (laughs) to get. So spending an hour or two saving that would be, you know, well worthwhile.
0: That's Huma Qureshi and Mark Lockley with an impassioned defence of your right to a good deal. A good deal is exactly what we're going to discuss next, good not only in financial terms but also in terms of environmental and ethical impact. For those fed up with the irresponsible excesses of the banking sector and the thoroughly unhilarious consequences that ensued, the idea of taking a more thoughtful approach to money is increasingly appealing. For some, that can even take the form of making up an entirely new currency. Duncan Law is involved in Transition Town Brixton, part of the Global Transition Town Network, which aims to respond to the challenges of peak oil and climate change. Recently, he's been working on the launch of the
11: Brixton Pound. We are in Cold Harbour Lane in Brixton in South London and we're out to do some shopping with the Brixton Pound. Here is the Brixton Pound and we have £1 notes, £5 notes, £10 notes and £20 notes and there are money that is worth the equivalent of a pound sterling and it's only usable in the local independent shops in Brixton. That makes the money go more round and round in Brixton doing more local benefit per pound spent. Hello, how you doing? Great, thanks. Could we have a couple of cappuccinos and a flapjack? No, a brownie, a chocolate brownie.
10: Cappuccinos and a chocolate
11: brownie. And it's all right if I pay in Brixton Pounds, isn't it?
10: Yes, of
11: course it is. Can I ask how it's been going? Oh,
1: it's been going really well, actually. Loads of people have, been, have known about it and people have been coming in asking about Brixton Pounds and uh, picking up the user guide and...
11: You offer a, a bit of a 5% special offer. Discount. Yeah.
1: It was 10% in the first month, but now it's 5%. That's so.
11: brilliant. Thank you. It's going
1: really well.
11: Lovely. The Brixton Pound Group has printed a lot of local currency. Local people buy those local currency. They commit their fickle national currency to buy faithful local currency. And at the same time, we've got 130-odd local businesses, to say we're very happy to accept the Brixton Pound. The next stage is to get those businesses being able not just to give the Brixton Pound in change, but actually to start trading amongst themselves. And ultimately, to get them looking at what they can get supplied locally. The reason we need to be producing things locally is that at the moment the city is very reliant on stuff being made outside and then brought in. Our whole economy is based around transport, uh, and transport is entirely reliant on oil. Uh, 90% of all transport happens with oil, and oil will start becoming scarce, will start becoming expensive, so that element in us getting stuff will become much more expensive. The financial crisis is an opportunity for us to get our heads around designing a new paradigm, uh, and in a way it should be a dress rehearsal for us because... The real economic crisis is going to come when the end of cheap energy hits us, which will be in the next couple of years, probably. We need to start supplying our real needs locally, and having a local currency can help do that.
0: Sunken Law enthusing about the Brixton Pound. Well, listening to that are a trio of highly responsible, ethical, environmentally sound and generally well-behaved individuals. Bibi van der Zee is a journalist who's written extensively on ethical and environmental issues. John Ditchfield is director of Barchester Green Investment. They specialise in ethical investments. And last but by no means least, Will Hodson is from the UK's leading alternative consumer organisation, Ethical Consumer. Bibi, let's start with you first of all. Your response to the Bri- Brixton Pound launch. Good idea?
12: Yeah, a lovely idea. I like anything where people are reconnecting with their neighbours, reconnecting with their community, where you're helping each other out, building a support network. I think it's a fantastic idea.
0: Will, there is a contradiction though here, of course. In some ways, the most ethical consumer is someone who doesn't consume at all.
13: Well, this is it. In that sense, there are two distinct components to ethical consumerism, a yin and a yang, if you like. If you're looking at the problems of people being forced to work under exploitative conditions around the world, that owes largely to us demanding more, quicker and cheaper here in the West. So people should definitely think a little bit longer and a little bit harder about what they buy. But the fact is, there are certain essentials of life where you are going to make purchases. And when you do make those purchases, it's crucial you make them with as full a set of information as possible. That's where ethical consumer comes in.
0: And... Those essential purchases, BB, you think, can be bartered for. How does that work? Well, I mean, bartering
12: is a pretty old system. It's been around as long as we have, hasn't it? It's the idea of giving somebody something in kind. But so is it
0: really practical in, in, in the world that we live in now? It's completely
12: practical. I mean, anyone who's got kids barters childcare. I'm constantly swapping my kids for somebody else's kids. And, you know, <laughs> I, someone takes mine to school in the morning, I have them in the afternoon. What I'd like to see now is that... People are coming up with slightly more formal ways of bringing and to to make it more lasting arrangements. And there's a barter card, which where people businesses can barter services. One guy who got all his um, construction work done in in return for putting together an advertising campaign for a construction firm.
13: I do think it's a way of building uh, links and bonds with people you wouldn't otherwise encounter. And also drawing on a sense of community you wouldn't otherwise have been aware of in yourself. And you don't get that necessarily when you are preparing a spreadsheet for someone in Hong Kong in your massive, uh, you know, multinational office in Liverpool Street. So, yeah. Mm.
0: Talking of spreadsheets on the financial side of things, ethical investments, John. I know that's your area. Now, for many people, there has been real confusion about this. Independent financial advisors clearly don't seem to be up to speed. But ethical investments—they can really work for you if you know what you are doing.
8: I would certainly agree that there's been a a problem with a lack of knowledge from the conventional financial services sector. I mean, if if someone goes into their high street bank and speaks there with a a financial advisor and asks for an ethical investment product, uh, there's still a fairly strong chance that they will be deterred from buying an ethical fund or investing in an ethically managed pension scheme, simply because the advisor that they're speaking to has not been encouraged by his organisation to consider the ethical dimension, I suppose. And is it
0: fair, Mm. though, uh, to say that ethical investments don't always perform Mm. well, or is that just one of those misconceptions?
8: Well, it's a very interesting question, obviously it's it's almost the question that has been asked since ethical investments launched in the mid-1980s. When they first launched, the city referred to the the leading fund as the Brazil fund, because you'd have to be nuts to invest (laughs) into it. I think really, though, in truth, this has been completely rubbish, quite frankly. I mean, you have a number of very, very good ethical funds. You obviously have to be careful, you have to be selective, you have to do your research. Our role is to advise. That's why we're specialists in this area, why we have a a great many clients who come to us for advice.
0: And, Will, isn't it true to say as well, in terms of buying things, that sometimes if you want to buy something that is ethical... In terms of going to the supermarket with your kids, your kids are screaming. You're not always sure if you're buying, for example, fair trade chocolate, where exactly all the uh, ingredients are sourced from, are you?
13: That's true. For example, you have this uh, with Cadbury's latest decision to turn its dairy milk range entirely over to fair trade. Unfortunately, only 25% of the product is actually cocoa solids, where you're going to be uh, rewarding farmers largely in West Africa. Beyond that, you have Wrapping and packaging, which is value-added, in no way benefits the farmers. And last, in other chocolate bars, not necessarily dairy milk, but you might have palm oil in there as an ingredient. Now, this is leading to massive deforestation around Indonesia um, and also threatening the very existence of the orangutan.
0: If you ignore the supermarkets, if you possibly can then again maybe that problem doesn't arise because you know where your food comes from although of course i mean you're a You've mom got, every, yeah. everybody has to go You've to the got supermarket to be realistic yeah. i mean
12: you can't just it's impossible mm. to never go to the supermarket i think what most people end up doing is a mixture so maybe a big shop at the supermarket once a month then you know like a good local butcher a vegetable box from a local small organic farm you know and you just mix it up and try and do the best you can you know it's all compromises it's got to be compromises there's no way of doing a perfect job. And, living the perfect ethical lifestyle, but you try and make as many local choices as possible and support local businesses. And fewer food miles, better food. My God, much better food.
8: (laughs) Just a quick point on this general discussion around the importance of developing local trade and uh, local exchange or barter systems. Um, One issue that I think perhaps is being missed is that still a vast number of people in the world um, live in poverty. And one of the ways that developing countries are... Uh, gradually emerging. I would look at the example of Brazil, where millions of people have come out of poverty, similarly in India over the last 10 years, is through trade. You know, I think there are certain benefits associated with uh, reducing the, the carbon footprint of food transport, etc. But don't we have to balance that with still trading with developing countries?
13: I have to um, step in with, with a note of caution. It sounds almost like trade. Evangelicism. Um And the reality is, at the minute, we are obsessed, in our society see all around you with, let's say, two things, for example, clothing and chocolate. These things emanate largely from West Africa. Now, as we consume these things in quantities unknown and impossible in the past, why isn't it we aren't seeing a concomitant rise in the living standards in West Africa? Because we're not. There are
8: certainly examples where global trade is not leading to improvements in people's living standards obviously I don't disagree with that but similarly there are countries where actually trade is benefiting people you know I'm not saying there's a simple answer here but it's certainly something that Mm. needs to be but where does that leave us
0: as as shoppers because of course one of the difficulties is that if we think to ourselves well the people who make the clothes aren't going to benefit so why switch why should I make any adjustments in my lifestyle It, it makes us all feel in a sense even more powerless doesn't it but I think that's why fair
12: trade has continued to do so well. I mean, in the recession, the numbers have carried on growing, and the growth since they started just over 10 years ago is really colossal because people want to help. We're aware that we are in this complicated global economy. You know, most people just don't understand it when they stand in a shop. They don't know. But they do know that somewhere at the other end of this packet is somebody
0: working in so, a field or in a factory, and they want to do somebody to help that person. So, where can you go to find the right Kind of answers to your questions and the right kind of support?
13: Well, I don't think there's anyone as good as the NGOs actually bringing these issues to life. If you want to know about things like electronics, Greenpeace have a wealth of information out there and videos interactive to check on their website. Just
0: remind us what NGOs are, will you?
13: A non governmental uh, organisation. Beyond that, we at Ethical Consumer obviously provide buyer's guides which will break down these issues so you understand what makes an ethical product um, and what doesn't. And it will give you a clear ranking of what is the best buy uh, in that particular product area.
0: And that brings John in again because, of course, as an expert advisor, how do we know the sort of areas that we should be investing in and, and presumably you've got that kind of expertise?
8: Probably the, the website I would point any, anyone wanting to do further research into this issue around Ethical Environmental Investment would probably be IRIS, the Ethical Investment Research Service. They have launched a consumer website in just the last couple of months which offers a directory of financial advisors specialising in this area. We also publish a number of guides on our own website around ethical investment. It's giving people an opportunity to engage, do something with their money that fits with their, their values, which is ultimately what my organisation is about.
13: I think without that emotional payoff ethical consumerism and even ethical living is almost nothing it's not just about striking up some kind of bond and getting back to your community within a five mile radius of your house Mm. media today actually enable you to empathize with people working on the other side of the world whose lives would otherwise be completely alien to you now i think without those human issues ethical choices are hollow now what we want to do is bring together Everything that we're talking about here, Bibi's talking about the sense of community. We've got John who's talking about the difference you can make with investments. If we can bring that all together to a kind of pangea of ethical living, I think we can make enormous progress in the years to come, and we have to.
0: That was our final panel. Bibi van der Zee, John Ditchfield and Will Hodson, wrapping up this special edition of In Business. The podcast was produced by Kate Taylor. I'm Claire Catford. Thank you for
6: listening.